Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. At different times over the decades, a canny, desperate, outraged child would escape from St. Augustine's to tell people in the world outside what was happening to him. Survivors from the home have reported that dozens and dozens tried. But even if they managed to break free from this horrifying and altogether separate reality, they never got far. The runaway was always caught and the police or his relatives or his local priest returned him. Then his head was shaved and he was really punished. If one of those boys had told Sally Dale of St. Joseph's in Vermont, more than 10,000 miles away, what he had experienced, she would have been surprised to learn that the boy existed at all, but she would not have blinked at his story. The Australian children of St. Augustine's in the Antipodes had more in common with Sally and her fellow orphans in the far American North than any other child who lived free in their own neighborhoods or states or even their country. Those boys and Sally were citizens of the same realm. Ultimately, though, the boys never knew of Sally's existence, nor she of theirs, but we can say now that they each understood something secret and profound about the difference between the world that most of us think we live in and the other worlds that only some people know. Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Christine Keneally has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, New Scientist, Scientific America, and The Monthly. Her books include The First Word, the Search for the Origins of Language, and The Invisible History of the Human Race, How DNA and History Shape Our Identities and Our Futures. And today I'm joined by Christine Keneally to talk about her new book, Ghosts of the Orphanage. Christine, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. As a senior contributor at BuzzFeed News, you worked on an orphanage story in 2018, focusing on the history of the Catholic institution of St. Joseph's Orphanage in Burlington, Vermont. But your story dates back further than that. What are the origins of your investigation? Yes, it actually went back a long way in 2012. In fact, in Brisbane, Australia, I went to a conference, the National Conference of Archivists, and just sort of stumbled into a presentation. I hadn't been planning on going to it and found myself in a room where archivists were presenting stories about Australians who had been denied basic information about who they were and about their lives. Some of them didn't know what their real name was or what their parents were called or if they'd had siblings. And it was this very confronting and strange story. And I learned that these people had grown up in institutions, in childcare institutions in 20th century Australia. For most of that century, they were known as orphanages. And that still 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, they were still looking for this basic information about who they were. And the archivists were often on the receiving end of inquiries from these people for assistance, for help. And they framed this as a human rights issue, which it very clearly was. And so I just had this sort of basic response of how can this possibly be? You know, how could this have happened to these people? This doesn't make sense. So I started reporting and I started talking to people who had grown up in those institutions. And the stories they told me were absolutely extraordinary. And just the picture they painted of this world, of these institutions where 
control played such a huge part of the story and there was incredible dehumanization. The picture really was one of these sort of bubbles inside this larger democracy in which we live, these sort of these intense bubbles of these tiny totalitarian regimes in which these children had somehow found themselves and been trapped. And the the experiences they had where this is a very common story. This happened in Australia. This happened across the world where kids would enter these institutions and they would be assigned a number. And from then on in their time in that institution, they were actually addressed as a number. And there were so many different stories of kids being asked essentially to do impossible things and then being punished if they couldn't actually perform. So one story was, of kids when they went to bed at night, sleeping in these dormitories, you know, sort of 10, 12, 15 beds or more, they were told to lie in the bed in a particular way. So they had to clasp their hands together as if in prayer, place their hands upon the pillow, place their head upon their hands, lie on their side and maintain that position all night even as they slept. And this, of course, is a completely impossible thing for any human being to do. And people told me about remembering being woken up by a sort of a flick to the skull or a whack from a nun or someone walking through the dormitory at night who basically was punishing them for not being able to maintain that position. Poor little kids wet the bed. You know, they wet the bed. That's what kids do. That happens at night. And it certainly happens in situations as as in these institutions and instead of being helped and assisted they were punished for that and then on top of these strange totalitarian rules there were stories of abuse and they were incredible there was emotional abuse a lot of these kids were told in one way or another and also literally you are society's garbage you are you don't belong your parents don't remember who you are. Your parents didn't want you. There are stories of emotional abuse where kids were tied down or trapped in some way and made to believe that they were going to die, that death was in the offing for them. There is, of course, tales of sexual abuse and the sexual abuse was, was networked it was organized, it was committed by male and female clergy members, and it was also committed by lay workers in these institutions. And, and there was also physical abuse, and that covers the whole spectrum. So stories of physical abuse, that would be familiar to people who went to school in the 40s and 50s, you know, what we would think of now as sort of standard corporal punishment at the time, being whacked on the knuckles or being hit in some way by a teacher but then physical abuse perpetrated by completely unhinged adults who were clearly not supervised and who answered to no one. So kids being thrown down the stairs, thrown up the stairs, uh, held out windows and threatened um, and beaten up in all sorts of terrible ways. And then ultimately there are also stories of death. Adults who had been children in these institutions told me about deaths that they had witnessed. And these were stories that I struggled to accept at the beginning. But as the years went by and I heard more and more stories about physical abuse, it became obvious to me that it was illogical simply just to rule these death stories out as too outlandish or too far-fetched. It didn't make any sense to not consider the possibility that they might be true. 
So these stories were uh, just absolutely amazing to me. And the more I reported on them, the more I wanted to find out. I spoke to many Australians who had lived in these institutions. And because I'm based in Australia now, but I worked as a reporter in the States for a long time, and I also started looking into the situation in America. And what was amazing to me about America was that the history seemed to have been completely disappeared there. I just, I couldn't find any trace of it. I spoke to people who had worked with the Boston Globe spotlight investigation, people who should have known. And a lot of them didn't know that these childcare institutions existed there in the 20th century. So I spent a long time trying to track down that story there. And I eventually found a place that I was able to report on. And I wrote about that for BuzzFeed News. And that article was published in 2018. So let's come forward in time to that BuzzFeed article. It's all about St. Joseph's, a Catholic orphanage in Vermont. And that is the focus of this book. You label St. Joseph's as ground zero for the world's orphanage story. Why so? Well, certainly it was a ground zero for me because I'd spent so long, particularly in the United States, looking for these stories and not being able to get anywhere because the history had somehow completely disappeared there. In Burlington, Vermont, in the 1990s, a group of survivors came together. This had actually happened all across the world, but different things happened in different countries. So in the United States, this movement of survivors occurred, but the options open to survivors there in the United States were different from those here in Australia and in other parts of the world. And the normal course for individuals such as these who were seeking justice, acknowledgement and compensation was to try to sue the Burlington Diocese and was to try to sue the Catholic Church. That process is an extremely combative, stressing and costly one. And even more so for people who already are extremely traumatized because of what they've been through. So they came together, they tried to take on the church Ultimately, and partly this is because this occurred in the mid-1990s, so it was the pre-Spotlight era. So before Spotlight, the idea that a priest might abuse a child was very, very hard for people to believe. It was an almost medieval time of, of just utter just disbelief, just ruling out the idea that something like this could have occurred. So in that context, these people sought justice They were not able to get it in the way that they had pursued. But by participating at great cost to themselves in this litigation, they generated a huge amount of documentation. So there were depositions, documents entered in discovery, such as diaries and letters and conversations with other people at the time and stories they'd told 20 years before that had left some trace. That massive pile of documentation was scattered again soon after the litigation. It was really hard to sort of find the pieces of it and to bring it all back together. But because it had been created at the time, I was able to do that. I was able to find the names of people who participated and then track them down again 20 years later to phone them up, to knock on their door, to ask them if they'd be willing to talk to me. Another really important part of why I was able to tell the American orphanage story through the lens of the St. Joseph story was because in the 1990s, there had been this really healthy local press. This is a problem for Australia now too, right? That the media has changed so much, but there was this well-funded local media. And there was one journalist in particular in Burlington, Vermont. His name was Sam Hemingway. 
he believed the survivors. He told their stories. He sought them out. He tracked them down. And in doing so, he also generated this massive amount of documentation that I was able to look back on, to use to verify stories that I was coming across and to also connect with Sam himself, in fact, and ask his experience of what happened. One of the first victims of that institution, St. Joseph's, was Sally Dale. What stood out to you about Sally and her story? Sally was amazing and she became the focus of my story for a number of reasons. And one is simply because she was at St. Joseph's the longest in the period that I was able to recreate. She was there from the time she was two to around the time she was 23. So one of the pretty standard responses of the defense in the 1990s litigation, if they found it hard to deny the trauma that had been caused to individuals who'd been there for two years or five years or 10 years was to say, ah, but you were also traumatized by your family. How can you possibly separate that out and say it was the nuns who traumatized by you? Or you left the orphanage and you married someone and you were in a situation of family violence. Surely that's what causes you distress now in your 40s or your 50s. But Sally was there for her entire childhood. And it was impossible to hear Sally's story and to look at her and say, well, there was something else going on there as well. There was nothing else. It was Sally and it was the nuns and the story was really clear. Everyone I met when I reported this story was an amazing individual in some way or another. They'd survived things that most of us really tremble to imagine. Sally was incredibly special also. And so I tracked down Bob Widman, who was the lawyer who actually took the case on, who represented the survivors of the orphanage in the 1990s litigation. When Bob first described Sally, he got tears in his eyes and he said she was incredibly special to me and he believed her and he knew that what she was telling him was true. And the journalist Sam Hemingway, completely separately, when I interviewed him, spoke about Sally Dale and what amazing person she was. So Sally had been through so much at the orphanage, but she still, even in her 60s during the deposition, spoke with this extraordinary quality of truthfulness and innocence. And she just had this rock bottom conviction that what had happened was wrong. And that was just clear in everything she said. Sally, also by virtue of her being there so long, actually had a number of stories about death, but there was one in particular that was incredibly powerful and striking. She spoke about how one day at St. Joseph's, she was around six years old. She was being led around the back of the orphanage by a nun and she heard the sound of breaking glass and she looked up and there was a boy in the air above her. He had been thrown from a fourth story window and he hit the ground before Sally and this nun. One of the most extraordinary parts of Sally's story and which goes to that quality of innocence and conviction that she had, she described the body of this young boy in a sense, bouncing, rising up from the ground and coming down again. She spoke of it in this very visceral way. She described this very physical story. She didn't really analyze or interpret it. She just said what she saw. Later on, I spoke to someone at the FBI, a pathologist who understood. He said that's what would happen if a child had fallen from that height or been thrown from that height. So Sally told this incredible story 
it was very hard to find other traces of it. She was the only one there and the nun as well. So part of my job was to make sure that every story that Sally told had evidence to back it up. So whilst I couldn't find more about that particular boy, she told an incredible set of absolutely amazing stories and all of which I was able to find evidence for in some way. And that was part of the huge challenge of writing this book was to find evidence for stories that someone said occurred 50 or 60 or 70 years before and for which there weren't many witnesses. When you consider the American story, the Australian story and the global situation for all these childcare institutions, there is a massive body of testimony, an absolutely undeniable mountain of evidence of stories told by people in different institutions who have never met each other, who have never spoken with each other about what happened to them, who talk about the same kinds of things that happened to them. Kids going missing in particular ways, kids being assaulted in particular ways. There are very compelling stories told by kids about other children who were thrown out of windows. You write about a network of these institutions and you say an invisible archipelago stretching across the Western world. Now, this sounds insidious at the very least. It was. It was absolutely insidious. And it's really extraordinary to look at all these places across the world and to see how similar they were, to see how similar the experience that these kids had. And partly those similarities are because a lot of the people who ran the institutions essentially came from the same place. I focus on the Catholic Church. In my book, the Catholic Church ran most of the institutions in the United States, but by no means all of them. The Catholic Church certainly ran many institutions here in Australia as well. So nuns from the same order spread out across the world. They were themselves a kind of diaspora running these different institutions in different places. But there were connections between the institutions as well. So the Sisters of Providence who ran St. Joseph's in Vermont also ran a number of homes in Canada as well. Their mother house was actually in Montreal in Canada. And unsurprisingly, survivors from those institutions also came forward in the 1990s to talk about what happened to them. I identified nuns who were known particularly as abusers at St. Joseph's. And I was able to find out that they'd also spent time in these other institutions where these kids came forward as well. I really want to talk about the individual experience of Australians uh, living as orphans in some of these institutions. And one name that comes up very early uh, is Leonie Sheedy. Tell me her story. Yeah, Leonie Sheedy is an absolute powerhouse of a human being. And she is not solely responsible for the recovery of history and the pursuit of justice in Australia for care leavers, but she is absolutely one of the reasons for that. So she came forward in the 1990s and with a woman called Joanna Panglace, who's also played an incredibly important role in the founding of this activist group for care leavers in Australia, they started this group. They started talking to each other first. They just validated each other's stories. Then they reached out and tried to find people who'd spent some time in care because there was no natural network of these people. So Leonie Sheedy and Joanna Pangles ultimately started CLAN. And because of their activism, because of all of their work, government inquiries have occurred, you know, and, and, and um, all these stories have been told. And in fact, just last year, 
the Australian Orphanage Museum, which I suspect is the first museum in the world that includes true and accurate information about these experiences, opened in Geelong. Therese Williams is someone who spent years on the West Australian coast in an orphanage there. And there's a couple of interesting names that come up there too. There's the death of a young girl called Eileen Sinnott and a sister Albina of Nazareth House. I met Therese some years ago now and she told me the story of this lovely British girl, child migrant, who Therese met inside the orphanage and Therese was terrified to be there. She was very lonely. She was scared of these cruel nuns who did mean things to her. And this lovely British girl, Eileen Sinnott, looked after Therese and was her friend. And one day, uh, Therese tells me she was walking back from the chapel and this nun stormed across the courtyard and kicked this girl, Eileen Sinnott, in the belly and she flew across the courtyard. Blood started to come out of her mouth. The way Therese tells the story is really powerful because you can see her remembering it as she actually tells the story. And she spoke about how things get a little fuzzy after that point for her. She didn't remember a lot about what happened afterwards, except later in the evening, she was gathered together with other girls and the nuns were saying to the girls things like, do not talk about what happened here. Eileen is sick anyway. Eileen had to go to hospital. There was some story about Eileen having her appendix out on the boat on the way over, just a lot of stories really being told, right, to justify what had happened that day. And then sometime later, actually on Therese's birthday, she heard that Eileen Sinnott had died. So this story stayed with Therese her whole life. She, like so many of the people who grew up in these homes, for a time she went on to become a nun herself. There's a sense in which she simply didn't know what else she could do. There wasn't a lot of skills and education and there certainly wasn't support for kids reintegrating in society that they'd spend time out of while they were in the institution. She eventually left her order and she told me about telling a nun friend of hers when she first started to grapple with the story and she was willing to talk about it. She told a nun friend of hers about what had happened. What was so fascinating to me about that story was that friend, that nun's first response was not like, oh my God, that's so terrible. Or perhaps you should talk to the authorities her response was something along the lines of, oh my goodness, don't tell anyone. It will be bad for the church. So the nun automatically accepted what Therese was telling her. There was simply no doubt whatsoever. The Therese has carried this story and she told me about it. And she's since now told other people about it. And she's really been holding this candle for this young girl who died a long time ago. And really repaying that friendship and making sure that Eileen Sinnott wouldn't be forgotten. How were the Indigenous population represented within these institutions? Yes, well, certainly there were some Indigenous kids who ended up in these urban institutions where there were a lot of non-Indigenous kids as well. It's also the case that there were these mission-run schools in the rural areas which were predominantly full of Indigenous kids What's really important about the story of the stolen generation and the story of all care leavers is that there's this huge overlap of experience. These were children. They were taken from their families. They ended up in these bizarre, surreal underworlds. Terrible things happened to them there. And when they left, 
often it was the case that no one believed them. And certainly it was the case that it took many of them years and years to even contemplate the idea that they would be believed. For the stolen generation, there are also these additional terrible complicating factors of structural racial bias, of explicit racial bias, extremely harmful social systems that still impact their lives today. It's also the case that for all these kids who ended up in all of these institutions, there was vilification. There was an extraordinary classism, which is something we don't often talk about in society, kids being vilified for the fact that they were poor, for the fact that they didn't have a family, for the fact that their family wasn't supportive of them. So there are really important overlapping experiences that should be investigated and honoured and the history should be fully told. And then there are also these important different experiences had by the different kids in these institutions that also need to be fully told. One of the most shocking aspects of the stories within Ghosts of the Orphanage is the involvement of police. And you remind us that there are two crimes within these stories, the act itself, the crime itself, and then the denial of the act, the concealment of the act. What part of police played in this conspiracy of silence? Well, certainly in the mid-20th century, it was the case. There are many stories of kids who ran away from these homes, who escaped them. Many went straight to the police to ask for help. And then this incredibly heartbreaking thing happened, which is that the police often put them in the car and drove them straight back to the orphanage again. And you can only imagine the rage that they were met with because they tried to tell the truth and they tried to bring attention and they were caught and brought back. Later on, and you can see this in the history of St. Joseph's, there are stories where even in the nun's own words, there was a runaway, there was a group of runaways. They went to the police, the police drove them back, but the police actually questioned the nuns for the first time that I had come across in all the stuff I had read. And the nuns in this writing, in this document, expressed relief that eventually they were able to convince the police that the kids had been wrong, but clearly they had been questioned in a way that made them very uncomfortable and the police weren't just automatically accepting the nuns' words for it. Since then, things have changed enormously. The police in Burlington, Vermont, launched a criminal investigation after my BuzzFeed News article came out in 2018. And essentially, they devoted resources to doing what should have been done 50 years before, to gathering as many of the stories as they could, to validating them. They issued a report after that investigation in which they essentially said, we believe you and this should never have happened to you. And certainly in Canadian inquiries as well, I'm aware of individual officers who've come forward and apologised to survivors for not believing them all those years ago. In the early 2000s, an Australian Senate inquiry was held. What effect did that have on bringing these stories to light and, and what action followed? There are two takes that I have on this. And one is not enough, not soon enough. And that's always true for these stories. But it is also the case that that inquiry was incredibly important because it was at the federal level. It validated the stories of these people for the first time. And it created these really significant records that now 
I, I'm able to go back and report on. I'm able to find people. Other journalists, other historians can engage with those as well. So it had a really important impact. And if you compare what happened with that inquiry to what happened with the litigation in the United States, it's a really different picture. That litigation destroyed people's lives. It was so costly. It was so challenging. It was so confronting and harmful. Even though it generated records as well, it did so in a way that was really hurtful to a lot of people. At least here in Australia, this government inquiry set out with the goal of supporting the people who'd been through these orphanages and who'd had these experiences. When the federal government says this is worth looking into, when the federal government says these people should be listened to, it has a really strong knock-on effect for years to come. The Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse was a five-year inquiry that submitted its final report in December 2017. That, in a way, seems to have drawn a, a line under uh, this investigation and, and the consequences, I suppose. But your book seems to indicate that the complete story, as it relates to Australia at least, is yet to be told. Absolutely. That that was also a very important inquiry story in my book is really just the tip of the iceberg. There's an enormous history here that still needs, that still warrants proper investigation from many journalists, from many historians and many different kinds of researchers. There's so much to be learned before it's all lost. And it is also unfortunately the case that even though the recommendations from that inquiry were very strong and unequivocal, that as you can imagine, Inevitably, some of the institutions have been very slow to come to the party and to contribute the kind of compensation that they should and to acknowledge and address the things that they should. And the reality is this is not going to go away. This is not going to come close to being done until they do that. Christine Keneally, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks so much, Greg. I've been talking to Christine Keneally about her new book, Ghosts of the Orphanage. It's published by Hachette and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.